Welcome to Wondercast, a community collaborative podcast supporting families navigating the complexities of chronic illness. Today, we complete the third and final part of this series, following along the journey of double mastectomy and the healing space that follows. In this episode, we sit down with Dr. Elizabeth Potter, board-certified plastic surgeon in Austin, Texas, an expert in the microsurgical deep flap procedure and the most incredible advocate for equitable access to gold standard practices of breast reconstruction. The care, support, and trust of your medical team is imperative to your healing. From inside the medical office to the floors of Congress, Dr. Potter and her colleagues are advocating for their patients and the future of breast reconstruction. Important victories and a marathon of advocacy ahead. This is Dr. Potter. So hi guys, I am Dr. Elizabeth Potter and I couldn't be happier to be here tonight. So I am a reconstructive plastic surgeon. My specialty is breast reconstruction and my practice is based here in Austin, Texas. I serve women um, throughout the country. I take care of about 40% of the women in Central Texas who are diagnosed with breast cancer, so quite a large area. I've been here in Austin for about 10 years. I have five dogs, and my husband and I love living here and especially love the work that we get to do with this community. You use the term microsurgeon to describe the approach that you take with your patients. For our listeners, can you kind of explain what that looks like? So technically, I am a microsurgeon. That's a special type of plastic surgery. So I did additional training to become a microsurgeon after I finished my reconstructive plastic surgery training. Basically, what that means is that I can move parts of a person's body around to reconstruct something that's needed. And in order to do that, we connect blood vessels and nerves in order to restore sensation and blood flow to parts of the body that might have been removed from treatment for cancer or prevention of cancer. So that's a long-winded way of saying that I can move parts of the body around and it's pretty magical. It's super magical as somebody who has benefited from this personally. Super magical. Is microsurgery for this type of repair, either deep or if you're doing implants, is that standard practice that it is a microsurgeon who is the type of plastic surgeon who provides that support? Hey, that's a great question. Microsurgeons really are the folks who have this type of surgery in their wheelhouse. So if you're someone who's looking to have deep flap reconstruction or another microsurgical type of procedure, it really is important that you meet with a microsurgeon. Might be that you don't wind up having surgery with that microsurgeon, but the level of detail, the discussion of risks and benefits and alternatives, especially the benefits, is just so very different when you're speaking with someone who's comfortable performing complicated procedures. I bet your audience has experienced this before, but if you're having a complex surgery and you're talking to a doctor or a provider who hasn't done that before, sometimes you walk away from that encounter feeling like more scared or more nervous when really what you what you're feeling is that own provider's nerves around the procedure, right? As a plastic surgeon, as any plastic surgeon who counsels a patient regarding breast reconstruction should absolutely mention aesthetic flat closure, implant-based reconstruction, and microsurgical natural tissue reconstruction. 
mentioning those things and helping patients be fully informed and empowered with information is critical. But when it comes down to actually having the discussion about the details of the surgery, it really is important to have that discussion with someone who performs those surgeries regularly. You wouldn't come to me to talk about the details of a facelift, right? I'm a plastic surgeon. I can perform facelifts. Absolutely. It's part of my training and I'm well certified to do that. But I don't do that every day. I did four deep flaps today. If you want to talk to someone who can really speak to it in a personal and real way. So many patients are dissuaded from having natural tissue reconstruction simply because it's hard to do and there's not many of us that perform it. And that's a sad situation that we're in and in plastic surgery, and I'm working really hard to try to fix that. But I would say, you know, get on a Zoom, get on a telehealth, talk to somebody. You don't have to be physically in front of them to get really great information, but you do deserve to have that information given to you by someone who believes in the surgery. For a lot of our listeners, many of them, they have either come from supporting somebody with a very complicated cancer journey, or maybe this is a new diagnosis for them, or they've had recurrent cancer, and now they're looking at actually doing something more evasive, like a double mastectomy or reconstruction. Do you have an approach with them that you feel like is the best way to guide them to get the information on what the surgery entails? In my own practice, I love educating patients. I love listening to patients. And it's not just me, it's the entire team. I think the best way for me to describe what what I believe in would be just to kind of walk through that. So before I ever meet a patient, we review the history in detail, the imaging, the receptor types, the size of a tumor, the previous treatments. I have all of this very detailed information in front of me. So I don't spend the majority of my visit going through the medical details, right? I think that in order to really understand the right options for you, you need for someone to get to know who you are. So a lot of our visits are spent listening. Where are you in life? What's your family situation? What are your goals? Do you feel overwhelmed by the thought of reconstruction right now? Should we just discuss what might happen in the future and then maybe table decisions for another day? I never walk into a visit thinking we need to book a surgery. I always walk into a visit thinking my goal is to lay a framework for the person in front of me to better understand their options. If we've been able to fill in some of that framework a little bit by the end of the visit, that's great. We just want to keep filling those details in as the patient is ready to receive that. I I think it's really presumptive for me as a physician to think that a patient facing breast cancer is going to be ready to talk about all of their reconstruction options that might affect their body for the rest of their lives at my appointment that I make for them at 1130 on Thursday. Like, life just doesn't work that way. So we make these appointments as a way to get to know each other. What I find is that the universe usually intervenes, right? Some sort of magical thing happens when you sit down and try to get to know someone and try to help them. The conversation naturally leads where it needs to go. Yeah, I'd say just take the time. Don't be pressured. Make sure that you're sitting in front of people that make you feel empowered 
This is all about you. For me, at least, reconstruction is about getting power back into a situation that sometimes feels like things are spinning out of control. I think one of the things that we hear a lot from the families we serve is that they struggle with this balance of dual offices because so much of the surgery that they are looking at, whether they are doing their reconstruction right at the time of double mastectomy or later, there is this interchange of different practices working together. Do you have any guidance on how that works? That's a great question. And I think it can be a delicate one. And it's best just to be very honest about it. So the truth is that not all doctors work well together. We all respect each other in this community completely, but our schedules aren't necessarily aligned. And it can be difficult to coordinate cancer care with doctors who aren't used to doing that together. I would say, you know, I work a lot with the breast surgeons at Texas Oncology, and I found that there are specific surgeons there that I've kind of meshed my schedule with. We practice in a way that's very complementary. So when patients ask me, who, you know, who should I see if they want me to tell them, you know, a breast surgeon, I'll share that with them. I think that that's a valid question. Sometimes patients come to me and they've maybe have a totally different team that I'm not used to working with, or they've seen another plastic surgeon and something just didn't feel right. Or maybe they, maybe it felt great and they just want a little bit more information. I try to, to tease out what it is that the patient needs. I try to put the patient first. If it means that I have to refer a patient to a surgeon that they're going to be more comfortable with, then I will do that. I just had a conversation with several doctors last weekend about that. So we were sitting around last Saturday and there was at least one, two breast surgeons, a surgical oncologist, an oncologist. And we were all talking about how you, you know, how do you get the right team together? And I think it's just so important to be humble and honest for doctors to be willing to flex with what the patient needs. Sometimes I just give information and and I say, hey, listen, you know, I think you're going to have your surgery with Dr. Z. And that sounds great. And if you need my help, I'm always here. And sometimes I say, if you want me to take over your care, I can do that because I can tell that you're not feeling great where you are. And it doesn't mean that your doctors aren't wonderful, but um, I'm happy to kind of take over. I think that coordinating care across multiple offices really does boil down to what works for you in your timeline. Where are you feeling the most heard and cared for? Sometimes it's really important to shift gears and find a different team to really take stock and go, okay, I need to see some different folks. Sometimes it's really important to just get surgery quickly. Every case is so different. I think that the litmus test should be, is the team considering the specifics of my care and my concerns? Am I being validated in my concerns and questions or am I being dismissed? Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I love, I love that concept of really looking at the entire framework. I like how you were saying that you pull back and really try to see the whole person in front of you because you're right. The individual line of care is so unique. In breast cancer, a lot of the treatments are really protocolized, right? So could you just sign up for treatment with any doctor who's well qualified? You really could do that. But in my experience, the magic of medicine, the the personal connection, the power of caring for people comes from 
what lies outside of those protocols. How do you really connect and how do you meet somebody where they are? I think that there's probably infinite ways to put together a treatment team that will get you to the objective you need to meet. The question is, how does that feel to you? And do you feel like you've had agency in that process? You had mentioned how sometimes the natural tissue of a person's body is not necessarily discouraged, but it's not encouraged. It's not put as the plan of care or as a preferred way to do it. Why is that the case? One of the million dollar questions that I've been asking for the last several years, as access to breast reconstruction has increased, we've seen some pretty amazing things. We've seen that patients are being told about the Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act, which says if you have a mastectomy to treat or prevent breast cancer, that you're entitled to reconstruction. Actually, it says if you're if you have a mastectomy to treat breast cancer, not to prevent. We're working on that definition. But it doesn't say what specific types of breast reconstruction you're entitled to know about or undergo. So what I've seen in my last decade of practice is that across the country, patients are offered surgeries that the surgeon in front of them knows how to perform. They are not offered surgeries that the surgeon in front of them doesn't personally perform. So if you feel like you're not getting the full story about your options, I would start with what surgeries do you, Dr. A, B, or C, perform on a regular basis? And if you're not hearing about the natural tissue options, I'd say you're probably just not in front of someone who performs them. I have a strong sense of justice. And I had this nagging feeling for a long time that there wasn't real, true, equal access to options for breast reconstruction. The penny finally dropped when several societies and groups allowed some changes to happen in the ways that insurance companies talk about and pay for breast reconstruction. So they tried to eliminate the code that describes the most modern natural tissue options that are the least harmful to patients. And they tried to group all natural reconstruction options together, effectively saying that removing a patient's muscle is exactly the same as keeping it, which just couldn't be further from the truth. Why on earth, when someone is facing a mastectomy, would you want to give them a new medical problem by removing their core strength or removing a critical muscle from their body? It just didn't make any sense to me at all. It felt like the culmination of a lot of inattention to what was slowly happening in breast reconstruction. It was actually being divided into two subsets, the subset of reconstructions that are available to people who can pay cash or pay really high fees out of network. And those were nice reconstructions. And then there was another group of reconstructions that were very antiquated, debilitating, and even barbaric. In the same city, you would see these totally different types of reconstruction happening based on the insurance coverage and the payment for those procedures, which is horrific. We're talking, of, it's 2023, <laughs> and what I have to say to the community is that insurance coverage does not equal access period. 
that's the fight we're fighting. So when I saw this coding change happening, I called all the people that, you know, a doctor would call, my my societies, my, you know, the people that I thought would care and nobody would do anything. And my colleagues around the country were saying, what are we going to do? We're going to have to, you know, close our practices. We can't do this. I sat down and I just said, I can do something. I think I can figure this out. Talk to some colleagues who I know have been active in the advocacy scene before. I talked to my husband and I said, I think we're going to have to invest our own finances in this. We made the decision that if we could change this for the future, that would be a really meaningful and important thing for us to do. Like we spent we spent the majority of our savings on this. <laughs> but I say it because like that's real. Mm-hmm. And I had conversations with my nieces and nephews where I said, I so I don't have kids, but I have a lot of nieces and nephews. And I said, I'm I'm spending your inheritance. So you're not going to get an inheritance from me, but you will have quite a legacy. Absolutely. And they were all like, go Aunt Liz. <laughs> so <laughs> So I got no permission. And so, yeah, we just, you know, we started doing it from the ground up. I went to D.C. We've got lobbyists. I met with staff members and, you know, we wrote letters to Congress and we got really a ton of support from members of the government. Everyone that we told the story to said, this just can't be true. We have to fix this. And, and then finally, CMS listened. They were great. And they reversed this coding change. So we did it. Yeah, we did it. But we have a lot left to do. We, there's a lot of work ahead of us. Um, I guess I'm just trying to better understand why in the world would a coding like that change? Was it oversight? Intentional? Was it based on what could give the biggest reward to the highest investor? I don't know kind of the status of why that had come to be the way it had. It's a complicated answer. I think that there was a lot of inattention to breast reconstruction. Let me start by saying that there are, you know, 8,000 plastic surgeons in the U.S., give or take. There's about 200 microsurgeons. So we're just not the majority. Plastic surgery is a $26 billion business in the United States. Less than 2% of that is natural tissue breast reconstruction. When the society that's charged with protecting access to this critical resource is a cosmetic surgery society that doesn't have a vested interest in protecting this resource, funny things happen, like breast reconstruction options go away. So before, the societies maybe didn't know. Now they are well-informed. No one can say they don't know. So if they're not doing the right thing now, it's because because they've chosen a different path. What I have seen, though, is that groups have evolved under pressure, that when the light has been shown, societies have started to support access to breast reconstruction. I'll also say the implant industry, breast implant industry, is very powerful in the world of plastic surgery. They sponsor and pay for everything. So many of the members of our boards of major societies, they receive yearly large amounts of money from these companies for whatever services they provide. I don't know what the particular details are, but you can see the amounts. And they're hundreds of thousands of dollars to individuals who are charged with protecting access to breast reconstruction. And they're receiving that from implant companies I see a conflict of interest there. I think that a lot of the existing structure around breast reconstruction is completely focused on implant-based reconstruction. And and that's it's a wonderful type of reconstruction. It should be accessible, it should be safe. We should be studying it carefully. 
but it's not the only type. And we can't let availability dictate a patient's choice, right? So what I've seen happen is that if an option isn't available in a community, patients are forced or funneled into breast reconstructions that might not be right for them had they had different choices. Perfect example is patients who need radiation. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. So the number of patients that need radiation is enormous. And every patient that has to have radiation should be informed about the very high complication rate of having an implant-based reconstruction. And instead, what they'll hear is, sure, I do it all the time. It's no problem. Well, it is a problem. And the data shows that it's a problem. I could spend my entire career fixing radiated implant reconstructions that are painful or infected or misshapen. You know, I could go on. There's so much to fix about it. So for your listeners, I would say that radiation is an indication for using your own tissue. It's the gold standard of reconstruction if you have to undergo radiation. And if I were to sit down and take my boards in plastic surgery and say anything else, I would fail. But then people go off into practice and only offer the thing they know how to do. That's how patients wind up with implant reconstructions in the setting of radiation. If you need radiation, you should be offered natural tissue reconstruction. Oftentimes we perform it after radiation, but yeah, that's the gold standard. I just want your families to know that um, if they want to get information from microsurgeons, there are, we are, we exist here in Austin. I am happy to talk about options with patients. My passion is definitely helping patients feel like they're taking power back. I truly feel that as a physician, it's my duty to inform patients about the real risks and benefits and alternatives of various procedures. And in order for me to do breast reconstruction well, personally, that meant that I had to know how to do everything so that when I sit in front of a patient, I can offer implants or natural tissue or flat closure. So you were recently back on the Hill just a couple weeks ago, right? I was, yeah. Yeah, that I was back in D.C. because we have lots of work left to do. Next up, we've got a couple of things. The Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act turned 25 years old in October of this year, and it needs an update. It so does. <laughs> we got a lot of bipartisan interest in formally updating the Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act through legislation. And just, you know, some of the main items, you know, that we're, we're thinking about, there's lots of them. One is, you know, including the various types of breast reconstruction so that insurance companies have to have networks that are adequate, that offer all the types of breast reconstruction using your own tissue, using implants, aesthetic flat closure. We want to make sure that patients have fully informed consent. So if some states have laws that require doctors to put in the medical chart that all the options have been discussed on this date at this time, and here's my signature. And that has helped, really helped improve access to breast reconstruction. We want to do that nationally. We want to ensure reconstruction options for partial mastectomies or lumpectomies. So those aren't covered under the current app. If someone has a lumpectomy and has a defect, that's not necessarily covered under the current act. 
We need for that to be clarified. We need for pre-vivors to be included in the Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act so that patients who have a genetic predisposition for cancer have the same protections for breast reconstruction as those who have a diagnosis of cancer. We don't want anyone to feel like they have to wait until they have a diagnosis in order to benefit from breast reconstruction. That's not clear in the current act. And then we need for revisions to be covered appropriately. Those are just a few of the items on the plate. You've got your work cut out for you. That's a lot of items in addition to four, four to five a day that you're doing of these reconstructions. Oh, yeah. I did four today. I'll do four more tomorrow. I know. It's good. I love the work, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel passionately that I want it to be available to everyone. I have colleagues who enjoy doing kind of boutique breast reconstruction that just doesn't fill my cup. Right. If I could do 10 more a week, I would. If I had the, the, you know, the ability to do that, I would. There's such a need. Honestly, I want to be a plastic surgeon for the people. Right. If, if you're out there and you think that plastic surgeons are creepy sometimes, I agree with you completely. My goal is to be something completely different, something that feels honest, wholesome. My last thing that I would love for you to touch on is the exciting things that are happening in your practice right now, starting in the new year. And I would love for you to touch in on that. You're so, thank you for asking about that because I'm so excited about what's coming. As someone who wants to provide breast reconstruction to everyone, I saw the need to be able to control a little bit more of the process. So we are building our own surgery center where we can perform breast reconstruction through insurance. So this isn't just, you know, a plastic surgery center where you do cosmetic surgery. I can do cosmetic surgery there too, but we went the extra mile so that we could do Medicare and Medicaid cases and cases through all the major insurers. We can do mastectomies and reconstructions, even deep flap surgeries in our center. Yeah, so that's huge. And we're so proud of that. And that's next up. So I'll I'll tell you first, it's called Redbud Plastic Surgery Center. Oh, I love that. That's perfect. So yeah, Redbud, like Redbud Isle and Lady Bird Mm -hmm. Lake. So I row. And if you row down there, Redbud is where you turn around and kind of take a new direction. And so it just felt like this beautiful way of, of starting on a new path. So Redbud. Gosh, that's a perfect name. I love it. So when can people expect your surgical center to be up and running? Um, January. We may be doing our first case December 29th. Oh my gosh. Happy New Year to that. That's amazing. I know. We will be um, having to go through the process of getting our insurance contracts before we can do all of the breast reconstruction cases there. I expect that by summer of 2024, if you come to see me, that that will be one of the facilities that we can offer you to have your experience in. Gosh, that's great. Well, I've taken so much of your time already. Is there anything else that you feel like I did not touch on or any closing remarks that you would like me to make sure we capture? I just want to say thank you to this community. I'm one of those doctors out here that, and there's lots of us, that have so much admiration and respect for the families that are in this fight. And I want you to know that we love the work We're here for you. I wake up every day excited to go help people, right? I want you to know 
that there are doctors like me out here that aren't just doing this because it's our job, but are doing this because the universe sent us to you and we are all in. So get ready. Get ready. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast today. Please subscribe and continue to check back as our content is ever evolving. For questions or specific content-related requests, please send an email to podcast at wondersandworries.org. 